You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. ...to the Philippians these Sunday evenings, and uh, we're reading in Philippians chapter 2 this evening, uh, from verse 1 through to the end of verse 4. Someone said to me as I, as I came in for my encouragement, I hope it's going to be a rousing sermon tonight, which I think was an indication of a certain tiredness, the end of a busy weekend. Uh, and it reminded me of a story my friend Alistair Begg told me about a mutual uh, friend from Northern Ireland uh, that I wish our Irish students had known. His name was T.S. Mooney. Uh, he was a great man of prayer, and Alistair was speaking at a convention, and Mr. Money was uh, looking after him and uh, praying fervently for him. And after about the fourth night, uh, when they were driving home, uh, Alistair said to Mr. Money, he said, uh, T.S., he said, you pray so fervently for me every night. It's wonderful to be lifted up as you pray fervently. But I notice every night, after I've been going about 10 minutes, you just nod off and fall asleep. Uh, he was an elderly, uh, quite an elderly man. And T.S. said to him, I'll not try and imitate the Irish accent. He said, Alistair, it's like this. I just stay awake long enough to know that you're going to be sound. And then I know everything will be well. So that absolution is applicable only on, uh, is this Black Sunday? Uh, it does not carry forward. Uh, into future absolution next Lord's Day evening. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, um, which I think in this instance is a more accurate translation. If you're using the church Bible, the reading is on page 1179, and that's the New International Version. And if you notice any differences, you follow the version I'm reading, okay? just because I say so. That should keep you awake longer than 10 minutes. So, we, Philippians chapter 2, the rubric over this whole section from 127 through to chapter 2 verse 18 is found in the words, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we noticed last time that the verb that uh, Paul uses there is not his normal verb for living the Christian life, uh, the walk of the Christian way, but it's a verb that conveys the idea of being a citizen. It's the verbal form of the noun, for those of you who are interested in such trivia, that he uses in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, your citizenship is in heaven. And the reason almost certainly he uses this language is because Philippi was a Roman colony. And so, if you were a Philippian, you were a Roman citizen. You lived under Roman regulations. In essence, you lived in Philippi as though you were living in Rome. You were an outpost, a colony of Rome, an extension of Rome. And certainly, I think Paul's point is that although you're living in Philippi, the Roman colony, 
your real citizenship is in a quite different empire, the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian life for you can be summarized like this, live out your Christian life in Philippi under the might of Rome as a citizen of heaven under the power of Jesus Christ. Or as uh, we put it at the end last time, you take off even while you may wear the toga virilis, which Roman men wore. Uh, The Christian wears the toga Christi. He is a citizen of a new order, a new world. And that rubric governs everything he goes on to say. So, let's read in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love… Now, if you're using an older NIV, it's different at that point. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on, so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And as we go on through the the rest of this section, we'll notice that Paul uh, picks up the principles he's enunciating in verses 1 to 4 and applies them in a variety of different ways, shows how they were so beautifully exhibited in Christ. And then he goes on to point to two Christians, two then contemporary Christians, who marvelously illustrate precisely the same principles. Paul loved the Philippian church. Uh, We could say he loved the church in Galatia. Uh, We could say he loved the church in Corinth but he loved the church in Philippi in a different way. There was an ease of communion and communication between the Apostle Paul and these Christians in Philippi. And this is already brought out by the confidence he has that the work which God has begun, he will bring to completion. Confident of that, of course, because the extraordinary way in which the work began in Philippi, completely unexpected, And if you're not familiar with it, you should read it in the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Paul had no intentions of going to Philippi. And as is sometimes true in the Christian life, God seemed systematically to hem him in, close the doors, and so he found himself preaching in Philippi And as Acts chapter 16 tells us, among those who were converted to Christ was a a prosperous businesswoman with a house big enough to uh, welcome Paul and his friends and hold church meetings in, a demon-possessed girl who was abused by wicked men, and a civil servant, a jailer, 
whose jail collapsed around him when he had the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in prison and was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't long afterwards that Paul was moved out of town. But a wonderful story of the work which God began, and he is sure that God is going to bring it to completion because he's obviously keeping on working in them. And the evidence for that is the fruitfulness of the gospel in their lives, the way they have cared for the Apostle Paul, the burden that they have for him. And so, he really loves this congregation. He does does not describe any other congregation the way he describes this congregation. You are my joy and crown, he says. And uh, that's that's a very human thing. That's actually not so unusual for, for those who have been ministers of more than one congregation privately and secretly, and never for the microphone, far less the recording, to think of one of those congregations as their joy and crown. And he is concerned very much through this letter therefore, about their fellowship together their koinonia, their unity, their belonging together, because he is aware of the fact that they will face antagonism from the outside, and they therefore will need to stand together uh, as one man, as he said, for Jesus Christ, and that's what he's been dealing with. He has been dealing with how the, the unity, the sweetness, the closeness, the reliability of their fellowship will guard them against antagonism and opposition that is external. But he's also conscious of the fact that there is opposition that arises to the work of Jesus Christ in an internal way in the life of the church. He gives a little hint of this later on at the beginning of chapter 4 when he, when he gives an apostolic shout-out to two ladies in the congregation, and he's urging them to agree together. Um, you know, ministers today value their jobs far too highly to give shout-outs to two ladies in the congregation because they're not getting on well together. So, why would he do that? Because he realized that their ability to stand in this pre-Christian world depended very much on the reality, the authenticity, and the closeness of their fellowship together. And in this passage, he is really explaining to them uh, what it is that will enable them to maintain that. Um, It may be true that as many churches have been destroyed from the outside because they were first of all destroyed from the inside, then we would like to think. And so, this is a great burden to him, a great concern for him, and he begins to deal with it in what is an exceedingly dense sentence unfortunately, at the end of our conference weekend. It's one of the densest 
sentences that Paul ever uttered. It's full of big words, and it is only one sentence. Um, and sometimes those sentences that are so dense it can, be, can be very difficult for us to handle. What do we do when we come to a sentence like this? The, the first thing we do is to try and plot our way through the logic of what is being said here. And if you do that, I think you'll notice that there's a very simple logic in what Paul is saying. In verse 1, he is, he is laying a foundation. He's He's presenting us with a presupposition. If these things are true, as I assume they are, and then in verse 2, he moves on to an exhortation. If these things are true, then the following. And then in verses 3 and 4, following his foundation, his presupposition, following his exhortation, he speaks about the transition, the transformation that takes place in the lives of Christian believers in order for his exhortation to come to fruition. So, there's a foundation, there's an exhortation, and then there's a kind of application. And it's helpful, I think, we'll get to the heart of this if we first of all think about what his exhortation is in verse 2. They have, they have been a joyful congregation to him. He said in chapter 1, verse 4, that when he prays for them, he does it with joy. And now he's exhorting them to fulfill his joy or fulfill his joy by having the same mindset. That is, by, by their, their disposition their, their focus of attention, the things that capture their affections, their imaginations. He, he's wanting that to be one, one shared reality in the life of the congregation. And he breaks that down a little bit. He says that means having the same love, that is to say, the same devotion. It means being in full accord, which means uh, literally, that conveys the idea of your, your soul being, being united together with one another. And the, the soul in this sense is your, is your appetite, your, your desires, things you, things you long for. So, he's wanting them to be united in devotion. He's wanting them to be united in desire. And since Glenn Harrison could use apt alliterations, artful aid this morning, he's also wanting them to be united in their design, what their goal is, what their purpose is. That is to share the same mind. So, he's looking for them. He's exhorting them. Dear Christian friends, he's saying, let your devotion, let your desires, let your designs be one together. And of course, often at this point, the Paul can be a little frustrating because we want to say, don't we? Yeah, but what? 
you're urging us to share a single devotion, to have the same desire and longing and aspiration and the same purpose and design, but what is it? Um, and he doesn't say. And when that's true, he can almost always be sure that Paul has already said what it is. That he doesn't say it because he thinks, I surely don't need to spell this out. You know, you remember your mother saying to you, Do I need to spell this out to you? The answer was usually yes. But Paul doesn't think that of these Christians. And if you, at your leisure, glance back through chapter 1, I think you will, with me, come to the conclusion that this shared devotion, this shared aspiration, this shared purpose and design is Jesus Christ. The previous verses have just been full of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But the great thing is that, uh, verse 18, Christ himself is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I'm being helped, he says in verse 19, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. But I'm going to remain here, I believe, so that in me, verse 26, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, it's evident what he's really saying that their ongoing unity, their, their fellowship, their koinonia is going to depend on every eye being focused on the Lord Jesus, every heart longing for the Lord Jesus, and every mindset being, how can we honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in our fellowship together? Because the Apostle Paul realizes that it's when we, or any one of us, takes our gaze off the Lord Jesus Christ and fixes it on something else, it's precisely then that we are likely to find ourselves fragmenting as a fellowship. And correspondingly, it is when our gaze is fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ that the many things that could cause us to fragment as a fellowship because we are so sometimes wretchedly different from each other will all, as it were, go into the solvent of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been shed for the remission of the sins of each one of us. You will hardly ever see disunity in the life of a Christian congregation except where nobody is asking this question, how are we going to glorify Jesus Christ in this place? And you will find that from the leadership of the church to the circumference of the church, 
when eyes in the fellowship begin to gaze at the differences there are in the fellowship, rather than the only one who unites the fellowship, then there is all the potential in the world for us to be as divisive among one another as people are divisive in the world. And so, in a sense, he's saying to them, where your faith began is how your faith should continue. And then he adds this little bit, which is perfectly legitimate for him to add, because he is their father in the faith, just as it would be perfectly legitimate for David after being here all the years he's been here, investing his soul into us, into every single one of us, because so few of us were here 20-odd years ago, to say, now, listen, fulfill my joy by being of one mind. You know, it's like, uh, it's like your great-grandfather saying to you, would you not just do this for your great-grandfather? Don't you see, don't you see the blessings that have come to you because of this ministry and the marvelous way in which God brought me to you. And, and he'd written in, in one of the other letters he wrote from prison to the Ephesians chapter 4 that the, the goal of his ministry was that the gifts for ministry spread in the congregation might spread through the congregation so that the body of Christ in this place might build itself up in love and grow into what he calls a, a mature man, a mature Christian fellowship. And in that world, as in our world, that would make a Christian church a phenomenon not least because when, when people would come into this fellowship, it wouldn't be immediately obvious to them why it was that these people enjoyed such fellowship, because they would see the, they would see the wheel and they would see the spokes, and they wouldn't yet have the, have the ability to see that all of those spokes actually were, they weren't going they weren't going through the minister, but they seemed, to be, they seemed to be rising invisibly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is his, his exhortation. He says, dear Christian friends, complete my joy. Same devotion, same desire, same design. How can we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not speaking about our own session meetings here, which, of course, are beautifully harmonious in, in, in every respect. Do you know how rare it is in Christian leadership for anyone to ask the question, what will most glorify the Lord Jesus in this fellowship? And you wonder why it is that the, that the impact of Christian fellowship is so slight? The answer is because it's 
so rare. So this is his exhortation. But notice that the exhortation is based on a a foundation, on a presupposition, on a motivation. And you notice in verse 1 that there's a series of if clauses. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Um, End of a conference isn't the time for a grammar lesson, but uh, conditional sentences are tricky, aren't they? Um, And at least in my experience, you you, you don't learn about them when you're studying English. You've got to study some ancient, decrepit language before you discover how language actually works. This is what they call a first-class conditional. That is to say, the if means, if this is true, and I assume it is true. If this is true, and I assume it is true. Well, what does Paul assume is true? I'm not quite sure how to get you, get you into this, but I was reflecting on these words in verse 1 a good deal this week. And you know, sometimes when you read the Scriptures, you, you, you gaze upon a passage, and then a, a shape emerges, or, or you're reminded of something, or there, there's an echo of something else in Scripture that, that, makes you, that makes you think, I think I see this in slightly different light. I want to draw you into that. Um, and we, we don't have time to say, take 10 minutes and just stare at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and then put your hand up and tell me what you see. Let me just read these words again and, and ask you if, you if you feel that there is, an, there is a, a pattern here. You know, people think in patterns and speak in patterns. Paul thought in patterns and spoke and wrote in patterns, in a style. We all do that. We've got favorite phrases. You shouldn't sit listening to preachers or even psychiatrists analyzing their style or their preferred way of putting things, but we, that's how we communicate. And there, there, there are a couple of illustrations of that in this passage. So, the, does this remind you of anything? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, does that remind you of something? I became so neurotic about this, I thought, I better not try and sell this to St. Peter's on Sunday night without checking up. Not to remind you of Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, um, some of the very best scholars, not tell you who they are, 
Just if I take my word, they're the very best because they agree with me. Actually, to my surprise, it wasn't because of no one in the history of the church has ever noticed this before. It was, so I'm not, you know, I've not lost the plot here that Paul thought so much about fellowship being fellowship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what he, how he puts in Ephesians 2, 18, our, our access to the Father is through the blood of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The blessing that comes to you, Corinthians, comes from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case, as I think it is, what he's saying is something like this. He's saying, so, because of who God the Trinity is, because of what God the Trinity has done for you and in you and is doing through you, and the result of that, if the result of that is that there is affection and sympathy and you want to complete my joy, then flesh it out in your Christian fellowship. And in a sense, if that's the case, what Paul is doing is, I'm pretty sure the Philippians didn't have John's gospel, but in a sense what he's saying is, in his last hours before his crucifixion, before he prayed in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, this is what he prayed for. Father, he said, I want the unity that we share together in the bond of the Holy Spirit. I want that to be reflected. Think of, think of what Glenn Harrison has been saying to us over the weekend about the enormous significance of the image of God. Then the foundation of our unity, the foundation of our fellowship, is in a sense that the very reality for which, towards which, the blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, has designed our salvation. It's for this that Christ died. That's why Paul says in Romans, how dare you not accept a, a person for whom Christ has died? It doesn't matter how messed up they are. Don't you realize who they are? I think it's probably why the Apostle John in John's Gospel describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I don't think he could possibly be trying to say to his readers, he loved me more than he loves thee. I think what he's saying is, that's how I've learned to self-identify, that the Father sent His Son into the world, and the Son has given me the Holy Spirit in order that I might know I am, I am one whom He loved. And if that's true of me, then it, it's true of all my fellow believers. And it works its way out. I think this is why He you notice he tag, I think he tags something on to the end of what he says in verse 1, and then he kind of tags something on to the beginning of what he says in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by the beauty of your fellowship. And he's, he's grounding this both in the 
in the reality of fellowship with the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the in all the diversity of the fellowship that we have with the Father in love, with the Son in encouragement, with the Spirit in communion. And, and then He's tagging on at the end, and, and it, it's not only who He is and how He has brought you together through the work of Christ, it's, it, it's what He has actually begun to do deep down inside you in the creation of affection and love. It's not something as a Christian that you, you work up for people, is it? Um, if, I, if I put it this way, David Robertson loves us not because it's a special virtue of David Robertson, but because it's a gift of the gospel, affection. And uh, sympathy Well, if you're still using the authorized version, he speaks about bowels and mercy. And actually, that's a wee bit nearer what Paul says. One of the great Greek grammarians uh, says that his, his doctor, his physician, always translated this, the stomach brain. And you see what he's saying? He's saying, you know, when, the, when it dawns on you that this is the fellowship, the communion you have with God, to, to steal, borrow, reuse, regift. Glenn's illustration. This is, this is the elephant who is being retrained by the wonder of the gospel to think that if God the Trinity has bound me to Himself and has bound my fellow believers to Himself, and doesn't that, doesn't that transform the, not only the way I think about my fellow believers, but the affections that I have for them? I love them because He loves them. I love Him because He first loved me, and I love them because He first loved them. And you see what's happening here. This is the word working. This is not the word saying simply do this. This is the word working in us in order to effect it in us. It's, it's lifting up our eyes to gaze at the privileges we share together, the, the bond that unites us rather than the things that distinguish us from each other whether they be, be socio sociological or personal or whatever they may be. I remember as a, a boy, I think I was 16 at the time, I'm sure it was in the Daily Express, which my parents used to take, and I read this little article that just absolutely gobsmacked me, and I've never forgotten it. It was, the, it was an account of a murder trial that was taking place, I think it was in the Old Bailey in London, and the, the murder had taken place in a Chinese restaurant. And the man, I think he had knifed somebody. The, the, the man had been arrested. He was there in the dock. And just when the murder had taken place, one of the Chinese waiters was just kind of passing by the table. And so he was in the dock. And the prosecuting counsel was after him. 
of course, to identify the man in the dock as the man with the knife who had killed the customer. I said, were you there? Yes, I was there. Well, I was serving the tables. Where were you? From this table. I was three feet away from this table. Did you see the man stabbed? Yes, I saw the man stabbed. Did you see the knife? Is this the knife? Yes, it's the knife. And then he said, do you recognize the man with the knife in the court today? And nothing. So he tried again. It's, it's, it's It's the man with the knife in the court today. You know, some sort of, I can't tell you. Frustrated, you know, tearing his wig off, as it were. But surely you recognize the man in the, in the court. Do you know what the Chinese waiter said? He said, I'm very sorry, sir, he said, but all you Englishmen look exactly the same to me. <laughs> well, what's funny about that? Well, there could be two things. But what's really funny about it is the joke's on us, isn't it? You know, I have a friend who flew into the, the King Po Airport in, in Seoul, and his, his welcoming party said, you will, re- you will recognize me because I'm of medium height, of black hair, and I wear spectacles. <laughs> now, what's going on here? Why does that happen? Why do all Chinese look alike to us? And apparently, we Scots, never mind English, look alike to them. Because at first, where your gaze focuses is in the things that are in common before you begin to notice the things that are different. And that's that's what Paul is saying. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Here is neither Greek nor Jew, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. And when we understand that this is the work of the blessed Trinity, this is the delight of God to bring us into fellowship with Him so that we're able to say with John, isn't it amazing that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ? Well, how are you doing it? Well, that's where we'll need to rush on and finish. He says, actually, quite simple to understand, but it can be very costly to do. Verses 3 and 4, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. You know, if that gets into your disposition, it really transforms the life of us. You don't find that in the world, do you? I saw something the other day. Women who, who behave nicely in the workplace do not get promoted. You've got to be after it, more important than him, more important than her. I mean, this is, this is nay natural, is it? And to, to see a fellowship growing where nobody says it, of course, but everybody does it. That means none of us will get out of the front door tonight. No, 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 you first, you first. No, no, you first, you first. What a beautiful thing this is. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And what he's going on to say is, you want to see this? Then first of all, you'll see it in the Lord Jesus. And then later on, he'll tell you, if you want to see it, you'll see it in Timothy and Epaphroditus. I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And Epaphroditus, who has been your minister to me, he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard he was ill. You need to go and read that again. It doesn't say he was distressed because he was ill. But even when he was ill, he was more concerned about the distress that might cause you than the distress it was causing him. Because he learned this humility. To put the interests of others before his own interests. You know, maybe this is a good way for us to end our weekend. Most of you have read Mere Christianity, but do you remember how it finishes? It finishes like this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. That's why he goes on in verses 5 to 11 to describe Jesus. And before he does that, before he gives the game away, what he's really saying to us is, my deepest longing is that you should be like Jesus too. Well, thank God that Christ has been with us, and that one way in which our desires for this kind of fellowship is nourished, by coming to the table together, supping with Jesus Christ. And as we experience the blessing of being reconciled to God in Christ as the Spirit ministers to us at the table. We, we rise from the table, and at least metaphorically, we want to embrace one another and live together as one day we will live together for eternity in that sweet unity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the work that Your goodness has begun Thank you, the arm of your strength will complete it. That your promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. And we pray that as so many of us have enjoyed the, the blessedness of feeling that the Jew from Mount Hermon has fallen on Jerusalem, that the, the clean air of the highlands has come into Dundee, 
that the atmosphere of heaven has been here with us on earth. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we may we may leave the various togas of this world that we wear. We are the toga of Jesus Christ together in this blessed unity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can't say amen to that, you won't be able to say amen to anything. Wonderful. Let's, uh, before we take communion, we're going to sing uh, the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Um, But just before we sing that, when it comes to the communion, I will read... After we've sung this, we'll sit down again. I will read uh, some words, the words of institution. We will pray. The bread and the wine are passed around. Please take and uh, eat and drink as it comes to you. If you are a believer, you're a baptized believer, and uh, you can be in fellowship with another church, it's not necessary that you be a member of this church, but you please take. If you are not a, a believer, then please just pass it on to the person beside you. But let's sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.